Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we talk to the folks on the front line protecting and delivering patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, I'm the host, and today I'm joined by Howard Scott Warshaw, For part two, actually, of a podcast, we did a part one for listeners. If you haven't heard the part one, I highly recommend it. And this one will be interesting, too, because you never know where these take us. (laughs) Howard, how are you today? Good to see you I'm doing great, Ed. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, you bet. To refresh people, if you like, I could introduce myself. I'm Howard Scott Warshaw, and I'm known as the Silicon Valley Therapist. I am currently a psychotherapist in Silicon Valley, where I work primarily with Silicon Valley leaders and those trying to love them, as well as the super intelligent, a number of other interesting populations. And I love this work. I'm very passionate about this work, but I've had many careers. This is my fourth or fifth. And one of my most interesting ones a lot of people like to hear about is when I was back at Atari, I made some of Atari's most famous and most infamous titles back in the early 80s before the video game crash. The best decade. (laughs) It was a great decade. It really was an excellent decade. Now is a more interesting decade for sure. And this being the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, I thought it'd be great to talk about some of the risks of mental health nowadays. Yeah. How that differs from the way things used to be. So let's jump right into it. So how long have you been doing this role, this job? I've been a licensed marriage and family therapist for over a decade now. So Good. excellent. So over 10 years I've been doing it. I have literally reached my 10,000 hours. <laughs> Theoretically, <laughs> I have mastery, at least to some degree. Excellent. I got a master's degree. So what are you going to do? There you go. That's great. I love the 10,000 hour plug too. I think that's a really interesting milestone. Congratulations. What's different over the last 10 years? What have you seen that's uh, really changed over the last 10 years in mental health in particular? I don't know how much has changed, but the thing that's gotten more intense, anxiety is big. People talk depression, but I'll tell you, anxiety is where it's at. (laughs) Anxiety, I've seen a lot of that and a little more acute. Panic attacks are on the rise. Mm -hmm. I think people trying to find where they are in their life, in their work structure in their social order? How am I doing with the people around me? I'm seeing a lot more concern about that. It used to be more about just here's what I'm doing. This is what's happening for me. People are a little more concerned about how I'm fitting in, what's going on around me. And another thing that has significantly changed, as I'm sure we're all aware, I'm not going to shock anybody, I think, the degree to which political shenanigans and machinations have really started to come to the fore in terms of what's going on in my life. And also the climate, the whole climate change and the fact mm-hmm. of the what's going on the earth. It used to be you just live your life. Now you live your life in tribal silos and those silos are sitting in something where the foundation is potentially falling apart. Mm-hmm. All of these things going on. And which leads to another thing that really is going on is particularly for parents, I am finding increasingly that people are concerned about the lives of their kids and what's going on moving forward. And that covers a whole range. There's a whole Mm -hmm. spectrum there from, I don't know if I should really care much about what's going on 
with my kids right now in school or stuff like this? Because what are they going to, what do they have to look forward to? What's going to be there mm-hmm. to, is there anything for my kids? What's my obligation to them? How do I feel about all these things crumbling around them? I'm hearing a lot more of that lately. Yeah. And quote unquote, what does the American dream look like for those, for, for that generation? Exactly. The American dream was all about moving up, keep going, but it covered a number of decades of progress, right? There was stages to your life. And now what does that look like when the last few stages, we may not be available for that? Or we don't know what life looks like 20, 25, 30 years from now. For some people, 10, 15 years from now, depending on your how much of a doomer you're going to be. Yeah. So do you see in your, obviously in your profession, do you see the, let's, let's unpack anxiety. Because I think you're right. That's a new dynamic that's happening. And it's always been there, but it's much more pronounced than it's ever been. How does it affect someone in the professions that you tend to focus on? It's intense. It's intense because people who are technologists or into technology, think about this. We live in a world where we are seeing both the best and the worst of things that they've ever been. For a long, long, when in human history have we had the ability to reach out to anybody else in the world at any point in time virtually and have a conversation, and at the same time, really be seriously concerned that within my lifetime, the world as we know it may no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Those are two amazing things. We have this race going on between there we're seeing this dystopic end of life as we know it. And we're also seeing this amazing utopic revolution of possibility and amazing things that are going on. So that's I happen to be listening to the book of the road less travel right now. <laughs> the idea of two paths diverging. One is an amazing beyond your dreams kind of futuristic nirvana. The other is the total dystopian horror show that everybody fears and makes for some great movies. Mm-hmm. And we don't, both these roads are going on at the same time. And are they going to diverge? And which one are we going to get on? Where are we going to be? The idea that there's even that choice, that it, we've never been clear about those two options are available and they seem to be moving away from each other, right? And which mm-hmm. road are we going to wind up on? That's new, right? I mean, you put it in the category of existential crisis, and there's nothing new about existential crises. Right. But this particular framework for it, I think it's pretty new. And a lot of people are really experiencing anxiety by and large about it. And anxiety itself, anxiety is an interesting thing, right? Because my question, the thing I always like to say about anxiety is that there's the, what I call the anxiety paradox. And that is that how can something that literally weighs nothing be such a heavy burden? Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Good way to think about it, actually. And, and do you feel like that dynamic is causing the majority of anxiety today? That fork? I think the idea that in the big picture of things, the very big picture, I can tell you that from an evolutionary standpoint, There's something that's very different now than where we've been for the last 100,000 years of human evolution, okay? And by that, what I mean is that the human brain has evolved over about 100,000 years to deal with a world where there's very little signal and very little noise, right? There just isn't much out there. 
And what we were doing is we were always trying to find some signal, some news, some message. When are some, when are the minstrels going to come to town and we're going to get the story of what's going on in the next town? Cause nobody goes over there. We're all very busy right here <laughs> and you don't get news. There is no signal. And what we had was a signal finding kind of brain that was evolved to look in an empty space and find something. Over the last hundred years, which is one thousandth of the mm -hmm. evolutionary course, we have evolved into a world that is overflowing with signals. And we are literally overwhelmed with signals. So now the problem is not finding a signal where there is none. Now the problem is discriminating between the signals and choosing one to get on and get into. And that's fine, but it's a different problem to solve. Yeah, and so crit think critical thinking is more important. Analysis is more important. Much more. And there's concern that those facilities aren't being developed as aggressively yeah. as they might. So at the time where we need them the most, we're not necessarily cultivating them at the same time. But just the idea that our brains don't change as fast as our world. Mm -hmm. Evolutionary change happens very slowly. but the phenomenon of change in our lives in the last hundred years is astronomical, it's exponential, and it's still increasing. My life today is so different from my life even seven or eight years ago. You go back a hundred years and it would take a hundred years for that kind of difference to occur in my life. So while the rate of change of our world is accelerating, our brains are just not evolved yet. We haven't had the chance to adjust to this new problem that we have to solve in life, which is now I'm overloaded with information I have to mm. select as opposed to just find some information. This mm. is the world we have to deal with. So we are now living in a world that is not what we have evolutionarily developed to deal with. And we've totally done it to ourselves. And so we're trying to manage it the best we can. But I think one of the real rises, one of the things that's really up the scale in anxiety is really coming to terms with the idea that when you have your cell phone and you have all your different channels that you want to listen to, and you have podcasts you're trying to keep up with, and all your friends are on different podcasts and you're trying to keep up with them, your sense of community, your sense of belonging, the things that are the fundamental pillars of okayness in the human psyche, yeah, they're being challenged in ways they've never been challenged before. It used to be, I want to tune out most of my friend group because I'm tired of that same old garbage. Yeah, it's Now it's, who do I keep up with? And making those choices, does, it, does this narrow who I am or who I'm connected with or what's going on? We've never really had to deal with these kind of challenges before. And one of the things that occurs when I'm faced with a brand new set of problems and a limited tool set to deal with it is anxiety, right? Yeah. Because another way to look at anxiety is the difference between how what I know I need to be okay and what I'm currently experiencing. Mm. And those two things, if I'm experiencing everything and everything's fine, I don't have much anxiety. But if I'm aware there's something I want or feel I need in my life and I don't have it yet or I'm not there yet, that gap frequently registers as anxiety. And it's not a big deal when it's a small gap, but that gap is also growing exponentially in some ways. Yeah, and no, so, great points. What, what types of tips or techniques do you give folks to deal with it, to handle it? I have to tell you right off the bat, the number one tip for people who are really feeling excessively anxietized 
is an age-old message, which is get back to basics. Turn off. It used to be in the 60s, it was tune in, turn on, on, and drop out. <laughs> drop out. Right? Excellent. And I think now I it's I can't like, believe you just quoted Timothy Leary. <laughs> talk great. about risk management. There you go. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he, was, he used to talk about vitamin K, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which was ketamine, right? Which mm-hmm. now is very coming back into vogue. Everything old is new again, except the anxiety is bigger. Yeah. But now it's more like tune out, turn off, and sit out. Yeah. And just be someplace. Be present. Sharpen your ability to be present and really understand what that means. And if you can exercise that muscle, then that could be a a tool to help you. Exactly. And also realizing that anxiety is a parasite. Okay. And what I mean by that is anxiety only exists on the energy we feed it. Mm. Okay. So if we can learn to redirect our energy away from our anxiety, the anxiety starves and it literally goes away. But it's not that easy because anxiety lives in our brain and it knows all the best hiding places because it knows where it can hide and where it's really good and how to insinuate itself into various things that we do. So... But really, learning to enjoy yourself without an electronic connection, this is something the human race has done for a very long time. But we have gotten to the point now where we are so, we're not just used to carrying and it's a habitual thing to have with us, you know, our cell phones, our connections, our tablets, our dopamine systems, the thing in our brain that says, ooh, that feels good. (laughs) That's what the dopamine system is. Right. And we found ways to tie our dopamine system to our devices. So when I lose my device, I'm not just inconvenienced because I can't find a book or a shoe. I may have lost my ability to feel okay. Mm -hmm. That's how tied we may be into devices. And I'm seeing more and more people who they're that connected. And you don't need to be. You can be effective in today's world and not be dominated by your technology. So get back to the ability to sit somewhere outside, inside, whatever it is you're going to do. Can you just sit by yourself, disconnected from the internet, and be okay? And if you can't, you need to start doing exercises to cultivate that skill, because that is now, I think that is officially a survival skill in today's world. And have you seen outcomes where people have practiced that and have had positive outcomes where they have actually disconnected and after a period of time? Absolutely. I'll I'll give you the simplest example. I don't know how many of your listeners have run this experiment, but a lot of people are news junkies. They don't think of themselves as news junkies. We used to say news junkies. Right. But now they're people who just doom scroll or or, or too connected with the headlines or Mm -hmm. all their social media. And so the thing is, can you... Turn off the news. Don't look at any news for 24 hours and see how you feel. If you're doing that, it's a great experiment. Just do it just for 24. If you do it for a weekend, that's fantastic. But I mean, if you can do it for 24 hours, do not check any headlines, any news sources, none of that stuff. No, YouTube, just look at TED Talks. You don't need to, you don't need to look at all the other side stuff. 
and give yourself 24 hours like that and see if you feel differently. Mm-hmm. And if you do, how do you feel? So being present is important. Self-awareness is important. Meditation is making a great comeback. Mm -hmm. But meditation sounds like a lot of work and it sounds, some people, very woo. Mm -hmm. Take a walk. Go out, leave your phone at home and take a walk of at least 45 minutes or an hour and see what happens in your head. And what they're going to experience initially in all likelihood is In the first few minutes, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms, actual withdrawal. Oh my God, where's my phone? Oh, where's the? Oh yeah, I left it at home. It's what if something happens? Oh, it's okay. People have been walking for centuries. (laughs) It's still okay. (laughs) But when you get past the withdrawal, you're going to start to realize all the things that ordinarily you could be on this walk, but you would actually be looking at your phone or you would be talking with someone in a call or you might be listening to something else that's going on and not really paying attention to what's around you. Mm -hmm. Take this walk without that and see how much more you get from the environment around you. Stuff you've walked by many times already, you're probably going to notice it more. You're going to see more. You're describing it as an addiction. And I wonder, have we reached that level where the technology has become an addiction? The clinical definition of addiction typically is Situation and withdrawal, right? Anything that if you need more of it to get the same jolt you used to, that's the habituation or tolerance, as they mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And then if you take it away, do you are you in some sort of deficit? Are you suffering in some way? That's the withdrawal. That's one definition of addiction. Another definition of addiction is when your dopamine release, in other words, feeling good and okay, becomes dependent on a specific object or activity, or exercise, or substance. That's another definition of addiction, that physiologically, I can't feel okay. Forget happy. I can't even feel okay without this. So if you look at the fact that we get our dopamine systems tied into, when I make a post and I get that ding that somebody liked my post, or I'm getting a reaction, or I'm getting some sort of feedback, and those things make me feel okay, and I start to tie my dopamine secretion into when I get those things, what happens when I make a post and I don't get that feedback? Mm. I'm gonna feel the Mm. deficit. I'm gonna feel the fact that it's not happening. What's going, am I being kicked out of the herd? Am I being rejected? Am I losing the protection of the clan? These are evolutionary issues that inspire anxiety that are now tied to electronic devices we have cultivated within ourselves. So on a very real and very basic level, tech is an addiction. Social media is an addiction. And one of the issues I deal with a lot is addiction to social media, addiction to video games, addiction Mm. to TikTok, to Instagram. I meant to look at this for just two minutes, and now it's two hours later. What Mm. happened? I think a lot of us know that experience, but we're not. I wonder how frank we are with ourselves about it. If you would have taken one of those hours, because you already threw that away, if you could go back, take one of those hours and take that walk we were talking about before, I wonder how different your experience were. What would you be like at the end of those two hours? If one of those hours was you just walking, disconnecting, resetting yourself, and then bringing a fresh you 
to the same media onslaught, you're used to just being immersed in 100%. When you get out of the pool, it feels very different getting back in than if you stay in the pool the whole time. We're creating a, a new class of human condition, the silicon junkie. That's a really good way of putting it, the silicon <laughs> junkie. That's yeah. true. Where yeah. I've got my Wi-Fi infusion. Yeah, and, I, and everything digital, I need it. And I need it. And if you take it away from me, I go through withdrawals, which again is feeding, like you said, it's feeding that anxiety. It's continuing to feed that anxiety. So until you, until you break that, you're never going to deal effectively with the root cause of the anxiety. You may be taking a pill, you may be going to therapy, but there's a root cause which has to be addressed. You need to break the cycle because people who are trapped within a cycle, it's really hard to deal with it until they get a sense that they're in a cycle. And once normal is a great question that comes up in therapy all the time is what's normal? Am I normal? What, what's normal? People always want to look at it as there's this objective standard of normal that we all measure up to. I think that's totally bogus. My, I have two clinical definitions of normal. One's fun and the other one is my basic working theory. Mm -hmm. The fun one is that normal people are people you just don't know very well. I always like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> but my real in therapy, my clinical definition of normal is what you're used to. Mm. Everyone has their own normal, right? That's why a trust fund baby can be really upset that they didn't get the right color Mercedes <laughs> convertible, right? Because that's normal. <laughs> and someone on welfare can be unbelievably excited and happy because they got an extra slice of cheese in their pack. Hey, this is my bonus, right? We all have our own level of what we're used to, and we notice deviations from that. That's where normal sits. And if you're normal, like a fish doesn't know what water is. When you're so immersed in technology and being connected and in your social media and all of those things, when you're so immersed in it that you don't know what it's like to not be in it, when that has become your normal, you have lost the perspective of what it's like to not be in that. And that's limiting how you see your life, yourself, the people around you. It's limiting your potential, your possibilities. When you take that break, you at least get a chance to reset some. Mm. You got to take the break long enough to get past the withdrawal symptoms of, oh my God, where's my phone? Where's my phone? But if you can get there, when you achieve escape velocity on your walk, you're suddenly going to, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And all you're doing is something that used to be the normal before people had this tech, which was most of human evolution. Yeah. So then you can come back, look at your tech, but now you can look at it through the eyes of someone who doesn't have to do it all the time. And now you're using it instead of it using you. So let's uh, take a couple of minutes to explore. I'm, as you bring this all up, I just, my head is spinning about <laughs> new concepts and new inspiration. What's the impact? What's the effect of this on risk, on people's ability to identify risk and actually respond to it in a positive way? Great question. Way? That's a great question. And it's one of the things I really explore in my book, Once Upon Atari, is the importance and the value of perspective. Because to me, it's about perspective. People think of solving problems as you get a problem and you bang on the problem and you bang on the problem until you solve the problem. I, that's not how I look at problem solving. The way I look at problem solving is there's a point of view, there's a perspective that shows you 
cleanly and easily how to solve the problem. And if you are free to take other perspectives, you're going to have a higher probability of being able to solve any problem because you'll have access to multiple perspectives and one of them may be the good perspective. So the more perspectives you have available, the better a problem solver you're going to be as opposed to just banging on the problem the same way because Einstein's definition of insanity yeah. is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Right, right. When something doesn't work, try something else, but trying something else, only I only have access to the things I can conceive of. Mm-hmm. When I'm totally immersed in technology, the ways I'm used to engaging technology become the only ways I see the world. And those are the only ways I have to approach situations and problems to solve. Them. When I take breaks from it, I get the non-tech perspective on things because not every problem we face in life is a tech problem. And I'll give you an example of one major class of issues that most people deal with in their life that is not a tech problem, and that is relationships. Dealing with the other people in my life. Even when I'm working in a tech company, I'm still dealing with other people. And dealing with people is not the same as dealing with tech. But we are losing people skills at an alarming rate in favor of technical proficiency, technical literacy. And I don't, I think you can be technologically literate and still be relationally literate. I think both of those are important to develop together. But if you only focus on one, you're going to lose the access to the other. And then what you're doing is you're just limiting, you're cutting your world in half and smaller worlds solve fewer problems. So the risk that we face by not making moves like this and not adjusting it is we run the risk of being less effective people in achieving our goals. And that's the big picture. Yeah, and there's tension. So one dimension of it is, to your point earlier, that addictive behavior, always striving to increase that pleasure response, that dopamine shot. And I wonder, and it's just a thought, I wonder how that impacts our ability to deal with phishing attacks and social engineering. Because if all of a sudden I'm getting served something that I should be or or I've been asked to click on. And I know that when I click on something, I get something (laughs) typically positive in response. Is that actually affecting our ability to actually deal with phishing and social engineering risk? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is a really good point, is that the fishermen or the fishing people, they're getting more sophisticated, right? It used Mm -hmm. to be, please send me money because I need to help the king of Siam or like this. Yeah. But now it's, hey, I, I get uh, messages that'll double my B of A account. It'll say, hey, your B of A account is. Now, they don't know if I have a B of A account or not, but what they're doing is they're tying into one of the fundamental auto responses in our brain is fear. They're saying, hey, here's how much money you're going to get charged if you don't click this button. It used to be, click this to have some fun or do this. You're really going to love this. Or you're going to have bad luck if you don't send this to five people. Mm. But now it's, we're invading your space. So you need to click here to protect yourself. Otherwise you're in danger. You're at risk. So they're getting better and more sophisticated in how they do it. If we, as the people who are paying attention, aren't getting more sophisticated also, They're going to win because they're going to start making money from that. They're going to keep doing it. They're going to be able to afford to study and work and find better ways of doing it. 
So there's this race between the people who want to abuse technology and the people who get abused by technology. And if we don't, if the abusees don't stay a little bit ahead of the abusers, that abuse is going to start paying off, which is going to lead to more abuse. And that's the other side of tech. We do want to be involved in tech, but you want to be involved in tech productively. In other words, being involved in tech doesn't mean just keep pounding and hitting your like buttons and making sure my posts are getting attention. It means recognizing what's happening online, what people are doing, and starting to learn that just because someone sends me a message doesn't mean I must immediately activate, do the analysis, do a little research, look behind the scene. We've got to be more analytical to be able to survive in an information-based world. We also need to get out of information basis to get people connected because on a fundamental, if, if human beings lose people connection long enough, they develop a lot of other problems that I see in my office, right? So if, if you don't want to come see me professionally, you've got to make time for both people in your life and to know and learn enough about the tech traps to not get caught in them as easily. Those would be two things you can do to significantly improve your life and increase your odds or lower your risk of having to wind up in my office professionally. Yeah, you stop, look, <laughs> think, <laughs> Stop, proceed. look, and listen. Yeah, exactly. And, and I wonder when cars, when automobiles were out there before really the whole transit authority and the, the stoplights and the rules, et cetera, how many people didn't stop and look and listen? <laughs> Got hit by a car, right? Which is where we are now. We're in that V1 of <laughs> the technology issues and risk accordingly. It's so true. And another thing, one, one other thing about anxiety that I think is worth mentioning, there's a fundamental differentiation in types of anxiety and that I, I differentiate between rational and irrational anxiety, okay? And the way I explain it is rational anxiety is you're standing in the middle of a road and you see a bus coming and you're worried you're going to get hit. That is rational anxiety. That is a positive survival trait. You need to pay attention to it and get out of the way. Irrational anxiety is I'm standing on the curb. I'm looking both ways. I see there's no traffic coming, but I'm still worried as soon as I step in the road, a car might come out of nowhere and hit me. Okay, that's irrational anxiety. When you're feeling anxious, one of the fundamental things you can do is try and ask yourself, what's going on? What's happening? What am I real? What's, what am I afraid of? What's my fear? Because rational, a lot of times we have a rational fear that's real, that's present, and we do need to pay attention to it. That's helpful. But sometimes we're worried about something, and if we can either talk to someone else or just get a little bit of a sense of, is this really a sensible thing? And if it's not, don't think, oh, I'm crazy, or what am I doing? Yeah. If it's not, just know this, that what you're actually worried about isn't the thing you think you're worried about. What you're seeing is a different source of fear emerging in this idea, in this context. Yeah. The person who's afraid to cross the street isn't really worried about getting hit by traffic. There's another fear they have. And if they came to understand that fear, that's the kind of thing that therapy can help you shift because eliminating irrational fears and eliminating the blockages and the times we get stuck because of those fears, that's really what therapy is all about. Yeah, being able to identify the noise through the signal. Exactly. Oh, boy. Oh, thank you. Any last comments or thoughts for listeners before we end today? 
I just hope people are able to take the break that we talked about. I think there's a lot more reward out there than we think there is. And there might be a little less reward in where we're looking for it. And if we're willing to take the break, if you're willing to take that great jump to think there might be something cooler than just staring at my phone for the next hour, given I'm going to have five or six other hours to do that, isn't that one hour worth exploring for the adventure that you might get? Because there is adventure. There is still unexplored stuff. And some of it is right within our grasp. We only need to be open to it. So I'd say run that experiment. Excellent advice. One last point. I don't know if you have your book handy, but do you want to give your book a plug here? That is a very good point. I believe the book you're talking about is Once Upon Atari, <laughs> How I Made History by Killing an Industry. And is. this is the story of me having made one of the worst games of all time that reputedly destroyed a multi-billion dollar industry. It also has the truth behind that story. It also has a lot of life lessons. It has my life story and what led me to and made me a successful therapist and the things like that. And it's just, you wouldn't know it to talk to me, but I'm a pretty funny guy. And so <laughs> I will attest to of, that. <laughs> there's a lot of humor and, and some oh. good, interesting uh, stories and life lessons in the book. You also made a lot of great games too, which I thank you for because I'm a child of the Atari. And Oh, thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you very yeah. much for that. And thank you for joining us today. This is Ed Goddard. From the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, if you're on the front lines protecting patient safety and delivering care, remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information on how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T.com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. <laughs>